because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. On today's episode, I have a guest I've been wanting to talk to for a while. He is an international energy economist named Anas Alhaji. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, I became aware of Dr. Alhaji on Twitter of all places. He writes really interesting tweets and I find that he is about the things that I know about. He seems to be right in my view and he seems to have really interesting views on international energy issues and as well as energy security. And those are two things that I feel like have been have been given short shrift on this show. There are all sorts of interesting issues about OPEC and Russia and how that relates to US shale, which is our main source of oil and gas these days. And I'm not an expert on a lot of that, but I am really interested in expertise. So I'm bringing on Dr. Alhaji to talk about that, as well as to talk about energy security, which is very much related to international energy markets. So I actually just completed this interview yesterday, so that I can tell you there's a lot of good stuff in it, and I hope you enjoy. All right, I'll be back with you on the other side. I'm joined now by Anas Alhaji. Anas, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you very much. So I've been following you for a while on Twitter and have lots of, of uh, questions for you. You have some expertise that we haven't had on this show very often. So let's start off though with what is your, uh, your background? I know you live in the US. I don't think you were born in the US. So where were you born and what- Correct, you I, was, I, was, uh, I was raised basically in, in Syria and Saudi Arabia. And then I moved into the United States over 30 years ago. Uh, I came in here after I finished college uh, I got my master's and uh, uh, PhD here in the United States and still here. What brought you to the U.S.? Well, when uh, I was uh, in undergraduate school, basically, uh, we had a professor who taught us uh, petroleum economics, and I got interested in this. So when I finished, I told him I'm going to go and finish my graduate studies in the United States, and if he can help me uh, locate a university that is suitable for what I want to do. A uh, couple of days later, he came back with a list of four universities, and he said, look, uh, University of Oklahoma is the number one in the United States right now, and it is the number one in the world. Uh, and there are other universities if you want to. So I said, okay, well, I will go for number one. And uh, um, I, was, I was extremely lucky. I applied, and I got accepted on the, in a very short period of time, and I came in. And you got your PhD in economics, is that right? And and, and correct in energy economics. In energy uh, economics, yes. how common is that? To or, and how common was it back then? Well, not common, but what happened is uh, because of the boom in the late seventies, early eighties uh, in Texas and Oklahoma, the universities in Texas and Oklahoma basically got most of the money and they got most of the support to do research in the oil business. So they ended up with most of the professors from around the world at those universities in Oklahoma and Texas. And that's how uh, the, uh, the reputation basically ended up there. Uh, uh, it's not that common. It used to be more common in the past. Uh, right now, there are very few universities that can offer such degrees, but there is not much market uh, uh, for it, as, especially as we've seen since 2015 with the decline in oil prices since then. So could you just give the listeners a summary of what your interests in research have been over the last 30 years? Well, uh, there are, uh, it's all in energy, uh, but uh, uh, one of them basically is market structure, which deal with uh, uh, the oil companies, OPEC, uh, et cetera. That's one side. The other side is uh, energy policy and energy security, which uh, we are going to talk about today. Uh, disruptive technology. People think disruptive technology is something new, and we will talk about this in a few minutes. Uh, disruptive technology in the oil business has been there for the last 100 years. Uh, so the interest in disruptive technology basically been there all along. All right. Well, these are all things I'm interested in. So let's jump in. Let's talk about energy security. And recently, when I'm curious about your overall view, and then I saw recently you used something called the energy security star, which I'm interested in. Okay. 
when we talk about energy security, energy security has, has six dimensions. And those dimensions like economic dimension, technical dimension, environmental dimension, foreign policy dimension, uh, those dimensions basically are competing and complements at the same time. So the issue is really a difficult, complex issue. It's not easy. And it's not easy for even policymakers to understand it. And that's why when policymakers make decisions, basically they take like a single issue and say, oh, we are dependent on oil uh, on the Middle East and we got to you know, lower that. It's like one dimension view. But the issue is really multidimensional because these dimensions compete with each other and at the same time they complement each other. So the proposal I made in this research was, okay, let's build this energy security star. And instead of going through those meetings on climate change in Paris or Kyoto or others, let's do this. Uh, every year, for example, the uh, United States with the leadership of the United States or any other country, they will go to those meetings and literally they will give a star, an actual star in a sense to each country and say, this is how you measure up today. And when we meet in two years, come back, but I want the area inside that star larger. I don't care how you make it larger, but make sure it is larger. Because it turns out, if you make it larger, immediately emissions will decrease. There is no way that emissions will increase when you make it larger because of all those competing dimensions and there are complements too. So the world basically, is always better off with improving its energy security based on this, on this concept. But the idea is to focus on the environmental part of it. The other parts are going to collapse on you. So you lose. So you might end up, for example, maximizing your environmental dimension and you lower emissions significantly, but economic growth goes down the drain or you might try to Im improve that uh, environmental uh, dimension and uh, your uh, energy security itself becomes uh, in danger because of, uh, let's say you end up with uh, um, those, uh, all those cyber attacks on power plants that we've been hearing about in recent years because of concentration on electricity, for example. But that concentration is against the idea of energy security. If you look at energy security in Europe and the United States, there is one single element that exists in each one of them, which is diversity of energy supply, diversity of energy sources. And that's, that's been there for the last 50 years. And the problem now is we are moving, because of environmental reasons, we are moving toward electricity at the expense of other sources. And we are going to pass a threshold after that. That makes it very dangerous for the nation to follow that path. And the reason why, because if you go for electrification nationwide on every aspect, and then for some reason, whether it's natural, terrorist attack, a war, or whatever, you have damage to the plants, what are your substitutes? The problem people do not realize is if we uh, electrify our transportation system, even partially, and we have no power because of a hurricane or any other problem, and those cars block the highways, all it takes 10 to 20 cars to block a highway for everyone else. So you don't have to electrify the whole system basically to end up with a crisis. So that concentration is really dangerous. And I suspect that there will be a time when some politicians are going to wake up and say, you know what, let's slow it down and let's look at the optimal distribution of those resources because there is an optimal energy security where we can optimize it based on making the mix, the energy mix optimal. So in, in, in a sense, what, what I'm saying here is we do need all the energy sources. So we are not against renewable energy. We are not against solar or wind or geothermal or hydrogen or anything else. We need all of them. We need electric vehicles, but we need the optimal mix. We are not going to go only for in one direction and that's it. 
Why is it? So the grid is a really interesting case because it's so it's I mean it's it's so interconnected so it's super vulnerable if you cut off one aspect. I mean let's say that there was just unlimited oil in the world and there were no environmental concerns why wouldn't you just seek a diversity of supply of oil like cuz oil is so versatile right I mean you can have local generation Correct. you can do anything with it. Well so there are two, there yeah, are two issues here. The first one is, if you want to go that route, you need diversity of imports and you need diversity of suppliers. So that yes. idea of diversity still exists there anyway. But there are cases, um, in a sense, if you go back just 20 years ago, one of the most amazing applications of solar and wind and others is that they work wonders on small applications. And if you look at the small applications of solar in particular, I mean, it's like, it's, it's extremely cheap and it works. Wherever you go, you have that calculator with you or you have your watch with you and it runs on solar. So the small applications basically of those energy sources works wonder. In fact, if you go back to uh, uh, places like Haiti, for example, during the um, earthquake on uh, other places where uh, we have crisis. Uh, there's this guy who invented this uh, um, case. It's a medical case. Uh, it's about this size, like the, the case of a Simpsonite. And it has a battery and it has a cell, a solar cell and a light bulb and some connectors basically. And what they do is uh, uh, they, they, they go to those crisis area where you have no power you have no gasoline, you have no diesel, you have nothing, but you have the sun. So what they, op they, they open this case basically and they charge that light bulb. And if you read the stories, basically they are amazing stories because the, the, for example, they, uh, they were called to a house uh, in Haiti where a woman was delivering a baby after dark and there was no light, nothing. It was dark, jet dark, black. And that light basically saved the day and they delivered the baby. So on a small applications, those technologies basically are amazing. And what, what happened is governments, government, I would like to emphasize this point, governments decided, oh, I want to take this technology from small applications to massive large applications. So by government choosing what succeeded on small applications, moving it to large applications caused us so many problems. Until today, we still pay them subsidies uh, simply because uh, uh, they don't work without subsidies. But on a small application, the government never paid subsidies for them. Right. Let me ask, uh, in terms of energy security, what do you, what do you, so you mentioned over-reliance on electricity as a potential source of energy insecurity. What are the other major sources of energy insecurity you see? And there are certain that I'm concerned about, particularly with the new administration, but I'm curious what you're concerned about. And uh, let's uh, focus uh, on the U.S. just for correct. There, our there are There are many. In fact, the biggest threat to energy security are policymakers. And there are enough evidence to support this idea. By making the wrong choices or forcing certain choices on people, they are causing all kinds of energy, uh, energy security. There are all kinds of contradictions in policies themselves. I mean, it does not have to be the United States because one of the favorite examples, uh, you and I basically kind of exchange messages on this, that there are places in countries where like uh, Brazil, Argentina, India, for example, where you have kind of uh, emerging economy with massive population, but the poverty, uh, uh, the, the poverty rate basically is very high. And when the IMF and the World Bank advise those governments that they need to, to reduce the subsidies to fuels, uh, they did reduce uh, subsidies and fuel prices went up. One of the objectives was, of course, to balance the budget so they can pay their debt. But the other objective was environmental. Well, what poor people did? They went back to the old coal mines and they start digging by hand. They went back and start cutting wood from the forest. And they started burning all that coal and forest. And in India, for example, they used uh, cow dunk uh, to cook on and do to all that stuff. So the emissions went up simply because of the wrong energy policy, because policymakers did not think about the unintended consequences. 
So to answer your question, one of the problems that we have is policy making that does not count for the unintended consequences. And this is one of them. What about uh, in the US, we have a lot of opposition that's probably only gonna to increase to infrastructure. How does that affect energy security? This is- Particularly pipelines. Yes, yes. It's, it's, uh, it's not only pipelines, basically. This NIMBY thing is growing now. It's, uh, the, the, the irony is it's backfiring right now on solar and wind. So people even with solar and wind, they don't want it in their backyard. The irony is even rich people do not want it in their backyard or they're close by. Here I am in North Texas, basically, we have a big lawsuit uh, in, the, in the area here because, because of this, without naming names, there are very, very famous names who, who were on the other side. They don't want to see any of that. Uh, so it, the, the idea here is, we have this NIMBY that people do not want it, yet people want energy, people want electricity. The irony is when people switch on the light, they don't think where the electricity is coming from and what, or what source of energy is being used. They just switch the light and that's it. They want the light at the end. But they don't want any other things that are associated with it. They don't want to see the uh, uh, wind turbine in their backyard. They don't want to see the gas well uh, in their backyard. They don't want to see any of that. That is causing a lot of problems. But my concern, I think everyone should stand up for something and I admire that. So those who are anti-pipelines, I admire their stand. And I encourage, even historically, I encourage my students basically to participate in social discourse uh, of various things that they care about. My problem is the, many of these things are based on wrong information or based on hype. And that's what I do most of the time. And I think you've, that, you've done that in your book and you've been doing this often, that we are really not against any of those energy sources. We are just against the hype that is being promoted and uh, against the ignorance that's been uh, widespread uh, nationwide and now worldwide because of these things. So when it so comes to pipelines, when it comes to pipelines, one of the problems we see is you talk to those people, they don't know more than, they, they, cannot, they cannot even go behind the veneer of the issue. And that's a big problem for me. So if we just talk a little more specifically, like what, what could happen in the next four years if just the opposition of pipeline continues, where you even see some vandalism of pipelines, what, how could that affect energy security and then the affordability and reliability? Of well, energy? I'm glad you mentioned this. We have this event in Aspen, Colorado today uh, on, on the uh, gas uh, pipeline, uh, which is clearly uh, a, a big problem. The problem is, people should realize that if we are not going to get the gas and we have a cold winter, schools are going to shut down. Am I exaggerating? No, because we've seen schools shut down in 1973, 1974. So it happened before. If we are going to shut that down the pipeline or prevent building the pipelines of uh, oil supplies coming to the United States, guess what? If refiners cannot get this oil, they are going to move out of the United States and we're going to lose jobs. So what we are going to tell those families who lost their jobs? One of the problems we have is if someone been at a job for 30 years and they lose it, the probability of getting a similar job with the same pay is very little. So we are destroying families in the process and those guys are, they, they don't even know they are destroying families in this, uh, in this process. Then comes the other issue. All of a sudden, they start screaming and yelling at Saudi Arabia and OPEC. Well, you cannot have it both ways. You cannot yell and scream about Saudi Arabia and OPEC and block pipelines at the same time. You cannot have it. You have to choose one of them. A life, in general, is about trade-offs. And I respect any environmentalist who think about the environment in terms of trade-offs. Those who think it's only one-way street, they, they don't even worth talking to. Life is about trade-offs. When it comes to energy, it is about trade-offs. And when we talk about pipelines, it is about trade-offs. So yes, you don't want that pipeline. I admire your stand. 
but tell me what is the substitute. One thing I've noticed with the opposition of pipelines is one of the contradictions is they're against pipelines, but then they also say we don't like flaring and there are too many methane emissions. What's what's your take on the anti-flaring, anti-methane movement that's usually also anti-pipeline? Well, the, generally speaking, I mean, let's admit it, that this is this is just a fact of life that the oil industry have done a tremendous job in trying to meet the environmental standards, but they still have long way to go. So we are not saying they are angels. We are not angels in the industry. So they still have a lot of things to do. We should not have any flaring. We should not have uh, any methane basically uh, uh, creeping out to the atmosphere, etc. That should be fixed. But the problem we have here, it's, it's kind of funny. Historically, those gas tanks in gas stations in California were leaking and they were leaking MTBE, which is an additive that added to gasoline to improve burning in the internal combustion engine. And that seeped to the groundwater and caused problems. So in a case like this, when you have a leak from a tank, we know that the solution is to block the hole in the tank or have a new tank. Well, what they did in California, they decided, no, I'm not going to block the hole in the tank. I'm going to change the MTBE to ethanol. And then we moved to the ethanol phase where we ended up with more problems after that. This is exactly the same problem we are seeing here is that, okay, you want, you want to fix the methane problem you don't block all the all the well all the uh, or block in all the wells and and, and finish the, the oil industry completely, thinking that will stop flaring and that will end it. Okay, the other issue related to this is, we have all these divestment that we are hearing about from major funds, and um, including that the Rockefeller Fund, which is one of the most ironic stories in the oil industry, uh, the divestment from the oil industry. All those environmentalists and the investors who are divesting from the oil industry must realize that if you are not sitting on the table, you have no say. You want to make a change, sit on the table. You don't want to make a change, leave. And that's what they are doing. That's one of the contradictions. And then they can yell and scream as much as they want outside. No one is going to hear them. They were better off basically staying in the business, influencing the business, making the change they want, than to divest and run away. And that's one of the biggest problems they have. With methane and the opposition to pipelines, those guys are better being on the table than just to trying to block everything. Because the bottom line is we have about four to five million people who live off the oil industry in the United States. If you are trying to suffocate them, justify that. What you are going to tell your kids about that? What you are going to tell your students if you are a teacher about, about those families and those children? And if you are going to influence their lives and tell them to get another job, help them get another job. Don't attack them and don't badmouth them. Those guys are not there in the oil industry simply because they want to hurt anyone else. They are there because they want to have a decent, li a decent living just like anyone else. So we have another discourse here where you see it on Twitter all the time. I, I post a tweet and all of a sudden I get attacked personally. Why? What is your problem? Oh, you, you, you got paid by the oil industry. So what? That's how I make the living. What, what uh, is your problem? So th there is this kind of uh, discourse that they don't want even to talk. So how are we going to solve problems if we are not going to talk? So the bottom line is the only way we can solve this problem is to talk. And if they don't want to talk, then they are the problem. Well, I, I think there's something to that. I'm, I mean, one thing I'm very wary of, though, is that, you know, the divestment movement has brought it in, broadened into a movement to control the existing oil and gas companies. You see BP and Shell and others. I mean, they're very much manipulated by a lot of the ESG movement that's making them make these commitments to you know, become carbon neutral by 2050 and all these other things, which, which leads me into the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is 
How do you see, so we can, if we think about the oil industry, one thing we can ask is what, how do you see the future of competition with the oil industry? Because right now we hear solar wind batteries are going to rapidly outcompete oil in transportation and in other things. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Uh, I will answer this question once. I would like to go back to the previous point because I would like to make a very important point here. Okay. There was a time when uh, the Christian right started attacking the oil companies investing in Sudan. And they come up with all kinds of stories. And finally, they said, well, there is slavery and they promote slavery in Sudan. Well, they kept pressuring those oil companies until they got out of Sudan. I'm talking about U.S. companies and Canadian companies. Guess what? The Chinese came in. No change on the ground. So we were there. Our companies were there. Western companies were there. Western personnel were there. They can make the change, but they were forced out. And now the Chinese are there and nothing changed on the ground. So who won? So just that that's related to the issue of pipelines and others. On the, on the future, basically, I think, uh, generally speaking, if you look at various forecasts, the decline in demand is exaggerated. In a sense, there is underestimation of growth in demand in the next 30 years. And that underestimation is big. At the same time, there is over there there has been overestimation of production of shale and there is overestimation of its role the problem is because shale is light sweet crude and light sweet products basically comes out of it but we still have the heavier products where to get that so we have many issues with that so let me focus on on this the impact of electric vehicles is overestimated. I am not disputing the numbers. In fact, even in my model, I have 700 million cars, electric cars by 2050. So I'm talking about a massive number. And I don't think it is possible to, for that number to materialize, but let it happen. 700 plus is needed only to keep oil demand, global oil demand at the 2019 level at 100 million by 2050. So even with massive penetration of electric vehicles, we still have 100 million barrels of oil demand in 2050. Here is the problem. Between now and then, to produce this 100 million, all of it has to be fresh oil. What that means is I still need trillions of dollars in investment in the oil industry just to keep what remains out of the old demand after the EV revolution. So there is an overestimation of the impact of EVs. One of the problems that what, where the overestimation comes in is that all those forecasts, basically they've been counting the switch from CNG. So if there are, are, are CNG buses in, in, in certain towns, they switch to electric. They count that as oil, although it's gas. And that's a big, big problem. The other problem is, since 2008, basically, we've been working on models where, if you recall, between 2008 and 2012, everyone was thinking about, oh, we are going to move to CNG, and gas vehicles are going to, to be the new thing, etc. So when we are doing the modeling, and countries like China, India, Pakistan, they start switching to CNG, and we looked at the forecast, it's the same forecast of electric vehicles we have today. People are saying, okay, this is you know the next green stuff and we are going to switch. Now, electric vehicles are taking over the forecast of natural gas. So once you look at the impact and you look at the final impact, basically the final impact on gasoline demand and diesel demand is way lower than what they are estimating. The other issue that is striking is that they expect the improvement in efficiency of ICE vehicles. So we are talking about gasoline and diesel vehicles to be historic. So they expect in the next 25 years, the improvement in ICE efficiency is higher than anything we've done. And that does not make sense. We had the low hanging fruit in the 80s. We already went through it. We already used all the light metals that we can use. 
cars are gets, are getting smaller until they cannot get smaller than our our bodies. So where that efficiency is going to come from? The technology already maxed out. So they expect that eight to twelve million barrels a day of lost demand because of efficiency. Where is the contradiction here? The contradiction is if ICE vehicles are going to be that efficient and that environmental friendly, why do I need EVs? So you cannot have it both ways that we have massive efficiency here and at the same time we have massive growth of EVs. It does not work. So you mentioned two things that really interested me. One is there, there are false assumptions or contradictory assumptions built into some of these forecasts. And then you mentioned that you had a model as well that stipulated the unrealistic possibility of 700 million. Where can we learn more about both of those, both the false assumptions and then also whatever model you have? Well, usually I, uh, I, I do speaking engagements and I do most of, uh, I kind of convey most of the details and show all the numbers through those uh, presentations. Yes. But one, one issue that people should realize, when we talk about international organizations, let's pick up the International Energy Agency or OPEC, etc. When they take the information from member countries, they do not question this information. So if, if, if the UK says, I'm going to ban ICE in 2030, they take it as given and they do their modeling based on that. If the government of Germany says, I'm going to improve ice efficiency by 30%, they take it as is without questioning it, whether it's mm. technically feasible or not, whether it's motivated by politics or elections or not, they don't question that. It is us, the independent analyst, who question that. So the fact that international organizations take the intentions of the of the member governments as is itself make those forecasts questionable yeah i mean you see this if you study the history of any of these forecasts or, or these claims these promises they're just they never come true i mean all the climate pledges don't come true so it's it is a huge hole if you're actually treating that as as even likely let alone certain let me ask then about, so we talked about a little bit about the uh, oil industry competing with other industries. How do you see future competition within the global oil industry? And I'm particularly interested in your thoughts on OPEC and Russia. Sure. Uh, let me start with the following statement. I think people should realize, and we should hammer this point often so people know that. There is no competition between oil and renewable energy. There is no competition between oil and solar and wind. Solar and wind produce electricity. In OECD countries, India and China, so we are talking about 80-90% of the global oil demand in this case, they, their usage of oil in power generation on average is less than 2%. For countries like France and India, it's less than 1%. And that 1% basically is because of either uh, uh, remote areas that they that the only solution they have or uh, simply because of historical reasons or in in a sense like in some places in the United States when you talk about especially about heating oil uh, simply because there are state regulations where if you want to do modifications to your house or to the building more than ten thousand dollars then you have to make it handicapped accessible then your cost will go to a half million so people will will prefer to stay with the old system and not move to the new system. So in a sense, what I'm saying here, even the replacement for that 1% is very hard remaining. So I just want to emphasize that, that point, there is no competition between renewable energy and oil. The only issue here comes when we talk about electric vehicles that are using solar and wind, that's when we talk about replacing oil. That's number one. Number two, on the, on the market structure and in the oil business. The first question is, do we need OPEC plus? The second question is, does the oil market need management? And if you look at the history of the oil market in the last 160 years, the answer is yes. Because if the objective is some sort of stability in the market, which everyone benefits from, 
if the objective is to lower cost, if the objective is to improve efficiency and uh, uh, reduce waste, then you need to manage the market. We've seen it. And if you look at all the evidence in the last 160 years, that every time the market man was managed, either by Standard Oil, uh, by the Seven Sisters, uh, by the Texas Railroad Commission, by the US federal government through the price control, or even OPEC, we have less uh, volatility in this case. The reason why we have more volatility during OPEC time, because OPEC is the least effective organization among all those who try to manage the market, because OPEC controls only their uh, crude production, while everyone else, especially if you look at the Seven Sisters, they control the industry from the discovery phase all the way down to the car. OPEC does not control the gas stations. OPEC does not control the refineries like the Seven Sisters. So OPEC has a role to play and the market needs to be managed. And the role of OPEC Plus in this case is literally to prevent those extreme volatilities. So to prevent us from going, let's say to 150 oil and then go back to $5 oil. We've already seen negative prices. Uh, so that, that's where the role of uh, OPEC Plus uh, comes in. The, there is a, some sort of alignment between Saudi Arabia and Russia on this matter, because they both realize that extreme volatility is harmful for both. And one of the ironies is, it seems like the Russians understood this issue better than the Saudis, although the Saudis have uh, almost 50 year experience in it and managing it. But for the insistence of the Russians on keeping production a little bit higher than what uh, the others want just shows that they really want to kind of uh, that some sort of stability uh, over time. So what brought Saudi Arabia and Russia together basically is this idea that we need that stability. Of course, it's relative stability. There is no stability in the market, but we need that relative stability relative to the other options. And the Russians already have seen it and they tested it when the Saudis basically flooded the market on uh, March 6 and 7, if you recall, when they announced, when they did not agree and they announced the major increase in, in production. Uh, so in a sense, there is, at least in the foreseeable future, we see some alignment within OPEC plus, at least for the larger uh, producers. Okay, well, you just raised a lot of issues. So there's an issue of, of policy, which maybe we'll discuss another time. I'm curious though, in terms of like longer term prediction, what do you see in the next 10, 20, 30 years? And I'm particularly curious about the role of US shale as you see it. Okay, uh, generally speaking, I don't think, uh, I don't see anything new in the oil market. I think what we've seen in the last 40 years will keep repeating itself. Uh, as for the shale, I, I strongly believe that Shale is going to grow again, uh, not at the same high rates that we've seen before, for a simple fact that in what we've seen in 2016 and 2020 in terms of reducing cost, in enhancing efficiency, uh, movement of capital, etc., happened because companies kept trying until they moved from the fringes to the core of the core. And when you move, from a well that produce, produces only 200 uh, barrels to a well that produces 1300 barrels, of course your average cost will decline. Of course your efficiency will improve. Well, that phase, we already passed it. So now with lower prices, the only thing is left basically is some technology efficiency and some management efficiency, and that's really small. So we are not going to see a repeat of what happened between 2016 and, uh, and 2020 or early 2020, but we will see shale reviving again. The limitation for shale growth, like the IEA envisioned in 2017 and 18, is its quality. Shale quality, the being light sweet, is going to limit its market. The reason why we export it in the first place and we import other quality oil, because of its quality. We don't have any more refining capacity to handle shale. Therefore, all the extra has to be exported. And we import about 6 million barrels a day on average right now. All, almost, almost all of that 
is the medium and heavy. So can you explain, can you explain that just for the uninitiated? Yes. Uh, why that is and yes. what the value of, of yes. medium uh, and heavy uh, is? Shale is, is light and sweet. And U.S. refining, um, most of U.S. refining capacity historically, especially around the Gulf Coast, the Gulf Coast and those who are, that are built in Midwest and others, are built to handle either the Canadian crude or the Mexican, Venezuelan, and the Middle Eastern crude. I'm talking about the history here of like 60 years. And all of a sudden we have shale. And shale is light sweet. And we have a presidential uh, order from the Nixon years that prevented U.S. produced oil from being exported. And we have the shale revolution. So U.S. oil production increased, but it's only of certain quality. But we cannot export it. So what happened is we replaced imports of the same quality. And that import basically comes from Nigeria and Algeria, Libya. Those are the countries that used to export that crude to the United States historically. U.S. refiners had a feast because they can take that cheap crude, the, the price differential, because U.S. oil was trapped and cannot be exported, and we have a lot of it. The price differential between the same quality crude in the United States and the outside crude was between $15 and $20. So we are talking about a massive differential. U.S. refiners took advantage of that because they can export products without any limitations. So U.S. refiners basically used the U.S. produced oil, refined it, and sold it in the international market at the higher price, and they made a fortune. That's why uh, during this period, uh, uh, refining stocks basically went through the roof. Until President Obama basically lifted the ban on crude exports at the end of 2015, and we were able to uh, export that crude. And what happened is those $20 differential basically shrank and they merged along the international, international prices. So now U.S. refiners do not have that advantage, but at the same time, they reach the level of uh, saturation or what we call the, we, reach, uh, we reached a refining wall. It cannot take any more of the light suite. Some companies basically try to maneuver and try to discover some old capacity they have, some flexible capacity. Uh, companies like ExxonMobil basically started to add some facilities so they can handle additional amounts. But all of that did not add up more than about 400,000 barrels a day, while, as you know, shale production was about uh, 7 million. Interesting. So is there a move long-term toward more light-sweet refi domestic refining capacity? No. Uh, and I'm glad you mentioned this because there are several issues here. Let's look at the implications, and let's look first at the political implications. The political implications is President Trump was wrong when he talked about energy independence. And all those who talk about energy independence were wrong because they did not understand that because of quality. Yes, we can have all kind of quantity we want, but because of quality, we still need to import about 6 million barrels a day. And this is a technical issue. We cannot do anything about it. No policymaker can do anything about it. We need to produce diesel. We need to produce the heavier products, and we get that from the heavier products that we import. So that's a political implication. The economic uh, uh, implication is that the, the ultimate solution is to export and import. And that's energy interdependence. It's not energy independence. And because of this, we are going to see the following things. Now, the IEA think, oh, don't worry, refiners are going to adjust and those who do not have refining capacity to take the light suite, they are going to make changes and they are going to take it. And the answer is no for the following reason. If you look at the same agencies that are saying this, and you look at their supply side and the demand side, it is clear that those who work on the supply side did not talk to the guys on the demand side because their forecast on the demand side is for the heavier products in the next 30 years. While their forecast on the supply side is for the lighter products. 
Well, how, how you are going to meet demand then if your production does not match your demand? So there is a serious issue here. And if you look, for example, at the increase of trucking in, in Asia, and those trucks basically are going to run on diesel. Well, diesel needs to come from the medium and heavier uh, crude, not from the light crude. And therefore, we have an issue here where we have, in a sense, double mismatch. We have the first mismatch is between the oil produced and the capabilities of the refining sector. And the second mismatch is between what is being produced and what is demanded on the other side. And we have two levels of mismatch. So, uh, this is fascinating. So what do you think? I guess I still don't understand why. Well, okay. So globally, I can see the trend is for heavier oil, like heavier oil as the basic material being more valuable or more, at least increase in demand to that relative to light, sweet crude. What do you think uh, U.S. energy policy should do to account for these facts that you're talking about? Well, you, the basics of U.S. energy policy are still the best. And if you administration after administration, whether Democrats or Republicans, the basic issues are diversity of energy supplies, diversity of energy imports. That's been the main thrust of every single energy policy. And that should remain. Now, we've seen, because of various reasons, we've seen more concentration on the Americas. So that's from the Clinton years, basically. We've seen more concentration on uh, uh, Canada, Mexico, and Latin America. And most of U.S. imports basically are coming from those, uh, from those countries. There are many ways where the energy security of the United States can be maximized. People should understand, especially some politicians must understand that, yes, you have all kinds of dictators around the world. And oil-producing countries have their own dictators too. And there are wars in those countries. But when it comes to energy security, it's not only about political instability. There are more labor strikes in democratic countries than in democratic countries. And we've seen more disruptions from labor strikes in countries like Norway than any other places. So if you are a policymaker or analyst who is focusing on energy security, you take those labor strike as serious as any political disruption. So the issue here is not only about uh, wars and political instability, etc. It is about these issues. If you look at the cyber attacks on energy facilities, for example, we have more cyber attacks on those facilities worldwide than any political uh, or than the number of political instability out of the Middle East or Latin America. So from an energy uh, security point of view, we have other issues to worry about beside political instability. But for the media, political instability basically give them a kind of a bigger bang than the other uh, than the other issues, although the other issues are extremely important. Uh, the other related issue is the same issues we have with oil historically when it comes to security of supplies exist for lithium and cobalt and, or, and nickel and everything else. So to assume that whatever we know about oil and political instability and labor strikes exist only with oil, that's a big mistake. The other things basically exist. In fact, we should remember that the US Army uh, moved in to an African country just recently, just in case something happened in the Democratic Republic of Congo to ensure the supplies of cobalt keep flowing to the US industries. So to think that we, we had wars only because of oil and it's not going to happen because of the other resources, that's uh, kind of a, a big mistake. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. And at some point I'm going to do a whole show uh, on that aspect of energy security. Uh, final question, your profile on Twitter says, uh, ban private planes, not my truck. Why does it say that? Well, <laughs> Let me give you a couple of numbers. A private plane going from New York to London will consume about 2,300 to 2,600 gallon on one trip. One way. I consume that in my truck over a two-year period. So we have those thousands of private planes 
and the environmentalists basically are ignoring them on, on several levels while they want to ban the big trucks, the big SUVs, and they want to do something about them, etc. Why really the big, the big thing is with those private planes. The guy who's going on a private plane can go first class on a big, uh, a big uh, uh, plane and the uh, environmental savings are massive. Just being going first class instead of a private jet. So what I consume in my truck over, this is, by the way, I have a, the biggest truck on the road. What I consume in two years, those guys consume on one trip between New York and London. Yet environmentalists want to ban my truck and they will let the other guys off the hook. It is an interesting, I mean, I'm, I'm for being able to use all of them, but it is interesting how all these efficiency things penalize certain people. And there's not these, like logically you'd say, oh, you should just restrict the overall fuel use if you were restricting it, which I'm not in favor of. But yeah, it's, it's like, no, you impose these onerous standards. You don't allow people to get the cars they want, the trucks they want. Uh, you know, even with home stuff, you know, you make our dishwashers inefficient, you make all these things inconvenient with all these efficiency standards. And yet wealthy people can just consume enormous amounts of energy to do. Well, what, there is a fact right now, after studying this for a long time, it is at the end, the bottom line of everything we see about climate change, that it is a rich man thing. And my problem is, you know, you earned your money, you want to spend it any way you want to, that's fine. But to think you have the right that others have to behave like you, although they cannot afford it, that you don't have the right for that. Uh, uh, let me give you just another example uh, on, on the hypocrisy here, because I think this is a very important story too. If you find yourself in a hole, the first rule to get out of the hole is to stop digging. What the environmentalists are doing basically is they just keep digging and digging and digging. So here we have a case in California where uh, a, a wind uh, farm basically needs to be built and they are asking for a permit. And what the state is doing, the state basically is suggesting that they need to spend more money to protect the endangered species, the birds that are killed, being killed by the wind farm. And instead of stopping the wind farm from killing the birds, they are resorting to spending the taxpayer money or the wind farm basically is volunteering to pay for it to expand the uh, endangered species programs at some universities and facilities so they can produce more birds to be killed by the wind farm. Which is one of the most outrageous things I ever heard since I've been in the energy industry. In a sense, you are, you are in the hole and you just keep digging and digging. The idea that you want to produce more birds to be killed by the farm, so the farm basically, the end result will be zero. Uh, uh, no, uh, so the end result is no additional birds are killed above the average. Right, the population stays the same. Crazy. Interesting. Yeah, that one, we should talk about that one sometime. I, I don't have as negative a reaction to that one as you do. I mean, my basic reaction to all these things is I'm primarily concerned with your mandating energy be less affordable and less reliable and how much that hurts the average person. So there is, well, I mean, the thing yes. that's really outrageous is also just, I think you've mentioned this, that an oil company, if one bird dies, it's, I think it's literally a federal case or it's a huge thing. Whereas wind turbine, it just by its nature, it kills these rare, uh, supposedly protected birds. That's just normal functioning and that's considered totally okay. So I definitely think you need similar standards across all forms of energy. And, and uh, one more point on this, that they keep talking to us about this massive decline in, in uh, electricity coming from wind and solar. Well, show me the numbers. Because if you look at electricity prices in Texas, as you know, Texas and Oklahoma are major wind producers. Well, the cost in Texas went up for the, for the uh, residential uh, consumer. In Oklahoma, it did not even decline, although they are number one in the nation today. So who is benefiting from the solar and wind? 
this will basically need probably another show because I don't want to start on it because I think there is some some sort of a lobbyist, uh, the richest of the rich basically are bucketing the difference uh, in this case. And the consumer is paying both, pay, paying out of their income tax and subsidies and paying the higher price. Yeah, there's a lot. I've been studying the corruption in that. It's, it's very massive. Uh, all right. Well, yeah, that'll have to wait to another show. Thanks so much for coming on. You're How welcome. can listeners uh, learn more about your work? Well, uh, Twitter, I'm very active on Twitter, which is my first name, last name, A-N-A-S-A-L-H-A-J-J-I. Uh, so it is at Anas Al-Haji. And uh, my website is my first name, last, uh, last name too. And I do tweet in Arabic and English. Uh, for the Arabic tweets, you can always translate. I think that I, I put some really interesting stuff uh, even in Arabic. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. Thanks again to Dr. Alhaji for joining me on the show. I'm going to keep this outro quick in part because the interview is long and in part because you may be able to tell my voice is hoarse. I've actually been having some voice issues for several months, which I think I'm close to getting to the bottom of. It actually has to do with, uh, like I'm going to see a speech therapist. It actually seems like I just have developed habits of speech that when I'm speaking as much as I have been over the last several months, it develops certain kinds of irritation. Fortunately, no long-term problems. So who knows what my new voice uh, will uh, be like, but I'm generally trying to rest it, except when I'm doing these kinds of, uh, I still am going to do power hour and it should improve over time, but I will keep this brief. So hope you enjoyed the interview. Uh, I mentioned that at some point in the future, I want to discuss maybe with Dr. Al-Haji, maybe someone else, different views of international oil policy in particular. He was talking about stability and the virtues of stability and having someone control that, some government entity, whether it's OPEC, Texas Railroad Commission in the past, uh, Rockefeller, that's not exactly the same thing in my view, because it's, I don't believe that's a government granted monopoly, but I think that'd be a really interesting topic to cover. And one guest I may bring on for that is Dr. Robert Bradley Jr., a person who's influenced me a lot and has an amazing uh, set of books called Oil, Gas, and Government that really look at the relationship between government and oil and gas. And he has some, I think, different views about these different kinds of cartels or other ways of controlling the international market uh, for stability purposes. So maybe we'll cover that in the future. Uh, as always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. If you're not on my mailing list, uh, get on it. If you want to get good weekly updates, that's alexepsteinlist.com. If you want great talking points about energy, go to energytalkingpoints.com. And if you are an official or staff in the U.S. Senate, U.S. House, or governor's office, uh, one of those, sign up for Energy Talking Points on Demand. That's a weekly call that I do include it. And then I also uh, distribute weekly messaging for elected officials in particular. So if you want to sign up for that, if you qualify, go to energytalkingpointsondemand.com or refer somebody who does qualify to energytalkingpointsondemand.com. One other announcement, unless I think of another one, is I am doing my next accelerator call in mid to late January. I'll be announcing that uh, in the newsletter. It's going to be on a Sunday this time. And if you want to go on the call, if you're already an accelerator, which means at some point in the last year, you've gone to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate and made a contribution of any size, then you'll just get an email. Let me know if, if you don't, but you definitely should. And if you'd like to come on the call, you can just make a contribution at industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. And Accelerator is our program that specifically uh, raises money to accelerate our efforts by funding research and development and by funding different kinds of promotional activities. On that call, I'm going to be discussing a topic I've never fully discussed publicly, at least not with my current understanding, which is the idea of shaping moral narratives. I have, I, I used to talk about this a bit, but I think it's a very helpful concept to think about in terms of how to change the debate on energy, thinking in terms of moral narratives. And with my recent work on my book and with energytalkingpoints.com, my views on shaping moral narratives have evolved a lot. 
uh, most of the time on that call will be any question you want about pretty much anything. So again, if you want to come, go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate if you're not yet an accelerator. All right, my voice is definitely fading even more. So I will sign off for now. Hope, uh, hope 2020 was at least in some ways a really good year for all of you. I wish you a high energy in all senses of the term 2021, and I will be back with you then. And I can promise a really good guest and a really good topic because I've already set it up. It's going to be uh, one of my favorite thinkers, Ankar Gatte, and we're going to be discussing how industry can effectively defend itself. All right. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.